I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guests today are Kara Dansky and Andrea Orwall. Kara Dansky is a feminist lawyer and expert in criminal and immigration law and policy. She's on the board of the Women's Liberation Front and actively fights for the rights and privacy of women and girls in state and federal courts. Andrea Orwall is an attorney in the public sector. Her professional goal is to practice public interest law focused on advocacy, policy, and programs that benefit women, children, and victims of interpersonal violence. So first off, thank you for your work, and second, thank you for being on the program. Thank you, Derek. Yes, thanks, Derek, for having us. So I'd love today to talk about sex-based legal protections. I'm just going to throw a bunch of questions at you first. So what are sex-based legal protections? Why are they important? What's their history? What are the threats to them, and what what can we do about those threats? You can just handle those any way you want. Do you want to start, Andrea, or should I? Well, I can uh, give a little insight into the history, if you like. That sounds great. Uh, All right. One of the things I like to point out when looking into the history of sex-based protections is that, at least in American jurisprudence, that was something we specifically had to carve out because it was always assumed, um, you know, up until the mid-19th century, that if the law was talking, it was talking about men and not women. Um, so from early on, we had to name women's sex-based protection. So, for example, in uh, the mid-19th century, we had Married Women's Property Acts um, because we came from a system of coverture where uh, wives would not have legal rights separate from their husbands, essentially. So the long and short of it is that uh, we specifically had to name each and every legal right that has been carved out for women. Um, and then fast forward till, you know, the mid last century, uh, 1964, Title VII, um, Civil Rights Act. I know Kara can give a lot of insight into that because, um, that's one of the major avenues of pursuing sex-based legal protections, um, in this day and age. Um, Kara? Sure. So I would just add to what Andrea said. Um, before getting into the Civil Rights Act, it was not until 1971 that the Supreme Court decided that women are people for purposes (laughs) of interpreting the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was enacted in the 19th century, and it was mainly enacted in order to address race-based discrimination in the United States uh, shortly after slavery was abolished using the 13th Amendment. But women were not considered people for purposes of that law until 1971, in a case called Reed versus Reed. So that's just another, you know, interesting aspect of the history of the importance of carving out sex-based legal protections. And then the next year, Congress enacted Title IX, which was intended to protect women and girls in the educational arena, having found that women and girls had been discriminated against in and excluded from the educational arena for hundreds of years in this country, for thousands of years in other places. And so Congress enacted Title IX specifically in order to remedy that problem. And we've had Title IX now for several decades. And more recently, we're seeing Title IX be eroded. Right. So I would agree with Kara that um, that erosion is probably one of the biggest threats that I am seeing. Um, And... uh, I guess one one other thing I want to go back to the history and add um, 
it's interesting you point out that the Supreme Court didn't consider us people until that particular year. Um, and it wasn't even until the mid-1970s uh, that something like pregnancy discrimination was considered sex discrimination. So when we say we literally had to carve out every single legal protection that we have, we're, we're serious. It's been a tiny incremental fight one step at a time. So b- before we go on, can we – what – I'm sorry if this is just a dreadfully, dreadfully ignorant question, but what what is sex – based mean and what does protection mean but why why is this uh why is this important you know you've 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 talked about women not having access to education um that seems important to me but can you can you really ground this i mean care if you want me to cover um what sex space means at a very simplistic feminist analysis level. When we talk about sex, um, we separate out sex and gender. That might be a framework you've heard of before. Um, but when we say sex based, we are talking about your one's biological sex. Um, so those born female have particular biological realities that require us to acknowledge them in the legal field you know, in order to access certain protections like Title VII and Title IX, which I imagine we'll talk about pretty soon here. Um, so, for example, the the pregnancy, or, or what you said earlier about how a woman didn't have, how did that work with women not having rights to property? So that was the ancient system of coverture, where essentially a woman did not have her own independent legal existence outside of her husband. They were considered one person, essentially, which meant that, you know, legally we considered only the man. Um, So for us as women to be able to inherit property at all, which was one of the first areas where we began to carve out, you know, women's rights, um, rights for female people based on sex, um, was in the property arena. And actually that's interesting because um, I think a lot of us today don't realize how recently that property, you know, struggle has, you know, that went up to. It wasn't until 1974 that the Equal Credit Opportunity Act actually gave women the ability to get a credit card by ourselves without a man's signature. Now, I was just going to mention that in the late 60s, early 70s, my parents got divorced and my mother, I, rem- I specifically remember my mother couldn't calling a credit card company saying, I want to get a credit card. And they're like, um, yeah, so get it in your husband's name. I yep. like, no, no, I can't. And yep. I, I remember being about 12 and just thinking this is really weird. Yeah, so I would say that's a direct result of the old, the ancient coverture system. And uh, in my opinion, one of the reasons it's so scary, we're, we're having some threats to these rights these days is because we don't, you know, we as, you know, people living in this seemingly free, you know, gender-neutral society, what some people want to envision it as, we don't realize how recently these rights have been won and how easily they could be taken away. And it's worth mentioning as well that the people who, the men who authored the laws that excluded women from all aspects of civil society, including the right to serve on a jury, until the 19th Amendment, the right to vote, Mm -hmm. and in the educational arena as well, 
did it on the basis of our biology. So right. you can go back and read, you know, the the legal theories that were written by the men who were enacting the laws that excluded us, and they literally said things like, women's biology makes us incapable of participating in these aspects of civil society. Um, in the educational arena, I distinctly remember reading one theorist who explained that going to school would endanger girls' reproductive systems and make it harder for us to have babies. So this is all very much grounded in biological reality. Right. Um, one of my favorite examples of that is it's it's our biology and it's the assumptions that male lawmakers have made about our capabilities, physical and intellectual, because of our biology. Um, there was an Illinois Supreme Court case in the 1870s uh, where it was basically affirmed that women were naturally timid and so it was okay for the state of Illinois to prevent women from being attorneys because we were mentally unfit to do so based on our biology. And of course we have Lawrence Summers, um, you know, arguing that uh, women are not in science and math because their brains just don't work the same way. <laughs> same old, same old story. <laughs> of course, that, for people who don't know, Lawrence Summers is still around. That was he was what president of Harvard, and he was also what secretary of the treasury or something. Um, mm. He was definitely president of Harvard, and he served in the Obama administration. I don't remember exactly what his position was, was in the Obama administration. Department. I don't remember what, but yeah, and so he and he was infamous for saying that um, that what I just said. So this is. And can we also talk for a moment about, um, can, can we, before we move specifically to threats, can we also talk a little bit about the struggles that women have had for, to make women's spaces and men's violence against women? Mm. Oh, gosh. Well, we know that uh, centuries ago, there was no such thing as a public women's restroom, right? There were public restrooms, and if women wanted to be out and about in society, they were required to use the public restroom. And this is the case in many places throughout the world today. Um, certainly, um, you know, women in, in Europe and the U.S. fought very hard to create public women's restrooms so that we could be out in society and use the restrooms if we had to. That was a, that was a, a hard fought battle. In terms of violence, you know, we can, we can share some statistics like, uh, between three and four women in the United States are murdered by intimate partners, current or former intimate partners every day. And sexual assault certainly happens on a minute by minute basis. And these statistics are all compiled by the FBI. So it's not hard to come across statistics about the violence that women face and the importance of our being able to have separate facilities like public bathrooms and changing rooms and locker rooms and things like that. Right. And it's spaces, physical spaces, as well as um, the space to, for example, um, sports teams is something we could talk about. Women had to fight very hard to be able to form our own sports teams just to be able to participate um, you know, on an equal footing, essentially. Um, and that, again, is, is based on biology. Um, I, I, I just did some math a while ago, and if we, 
the gold standard studies are that about one woman in four is raped in her lifetime. And I did the math on the New York metropolitan area just to see how this worked out. And there's about 20 million people. That means there's about 10 million women. And if one out of every four women is raped in her lifetime, that means that about two and a half million women in that area have been or will be raped. And if each woman lives an average of 78 years and is only raped once in her lifetime, which is a dubious assumption, that means that just in the New York metropolitan area, there are about 32,000 rapes per year or 88 per day or about um, three and a half per hour. And so this is not a uh, theoretical problem. I mean, this is this is happening right now in New York City, right. Atlanta, Georgia, Houston, Texas, Los Angeles. Right. And just on a, on a very small scale, if I can share a, a personal anecdote from the last job I had, you know, I worked in one department of a district court in a, a major city, and I wanted to keep track of um, how many women we saw as victims of rape or uh, wife beating or murder, and I had to stop keeping track because there were just too many. Um, Kara, I can't remember her name, but there, there is a woman who does uh, Woman Count USA. She keeps track of violence statistics against women, and it's just astonishing, the, the pure numbers. Um, difficult to get your head around, I think. But it's it's normalized as well, right? right. So we are... We have been, we have all, I think, women and men, have been socialized to accept that this state of affairs is simply normal. Um, I could also share a, an anecdote. This does not have to do with sexual violence, but just the normalcy of physical violence. I was speaking with a woman who works in the international humanitarian field, and she told me about an incident in which she was in her office and a male colleague was in there with her and they were meeting and their conversation got a bit heated and he literally punched her in the face. He punched her in the workplace. And at first it didn't even occur to her to report the incident to her, her um, HR department because she just had internalized the normalcy of violence against women. And when she ultimately did report it to HR, they did nothing about it. Right. I mean, and normalcy, just we, we can talk about, you know, what we're told as women walking to our cars, going home from work at night. Oh, make sure you walk with your keys between your fingers, you know, watch out if someone's walking behind you. And that's just something we're supposed to put up with for being in a public space while female. You know, a story I've told before at talks is that I was doing a tour and I got in really late to my hotel and I hadn't eaten all day and the nearest food was like a mile and a half down this deserted highway. And so am I more hungry or tired? I'm hungry. So I start to walk there and I go past this van that's in an, an abandoned, in an in empty parking lot. And as I walk past the van, they start their car and I jump and freak out. And then when I would tell this story at talks, I then stop and I say to the audience, so at this point, I, having been scared, would you continue to walk to the Denny's or would you go back to your hotel? And every woman in the audience goes, are you kidding? At 1.30 in the morning, deserted highway, I would not walk. To, I, w I would go to bed hungry. <laughs> and that it had not even occurred to me until the van started up that something bad could happen to me. And that's just such a perfect example of, of male privilege and this normalization of, of, of the potential of violence against women. Well, there's an author who, who writes about 
a story that she reflects on where she's an author and she writes late at night. And one um, late night writing session, she got a craving for some ice cream and she called her friend and she said, I'm going to run out to the convenience store for some ice cream. If I'm not back in 15 or if you don't hear from me within 15 minutes, call the police. And the friend didn't even question why she was even doing that. Right. Like, Women do this all the time, and we know exactly why we're requesting this of our friends. Mm-hmm. No one questions it, but a man would never think to do that. I don't think I have a, a single friend who doesn't have some kind of story along these lines of, you know, being followed home from work or, you know, or of more extreme violent incidences. It's uh, just something that we expect to be able to have to talk about and confront as women on a day-to-day basis. So let's thank you for telling, telling me all about that. And can you, can we go back to the sex-based protections and can you bring us forward? Don't go to threats yet quite, but can you bring us forward from 1974 to what are the good things that have happened in terms of sex-based protection since then? Hmm. Andrea, do you want to take a stab at that? Right. I mean, um, so let's see. Given Title VII and Title IX, which are the major federal sources of sex-based legal protections, um, we've had Supreme Court precedent that's laid down things like the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. So as you might know now, there are a lot of protections for pregnant women who are working, who, I mean, first of all, we can no longer be fired just for becoming pregnant, um, which was, you know, up until the mid-70s, a, a huge fight to get that protection. Um, and then fast forward into the 80s, in 1989, we had the Supreme Court case uh, Price Waterhouse v. Hopkins um, that specifically discussed that a woman cannot be penalized in the workplace for not performing what's thought of as stereotypical femininity, um, you know, high heels and the makeup that you've got to wear and you've got to be submissive and docile. You know, in the 80s, the Supreme Court told us a workplace cannot require women to to behave this way, like, a, you know, in this stereotypical feminine way. Um, and uh, these Civil Rights Act protections are a major source of us being able to win each of these victories. Um I would agree with that. And, and as Andrea said, Title IX, in terms of protecting women's sports in colleges, we've made some huge advances mm-hmm. over the last couple of decades in terms of women being able to compete in sports. And um, there's an aspect of that that has to do with funding. The requirement that women's sports be funded equally with men's has made a huge difference in, in terms of the growth and growing popularity, I would say, of women's sports in universities and professionally. Yes, I, I agree with that as well. And um, the conversation has even turned um, international now. And, uh, of course, I think the U.S. lags behind a little bit in being part of these international efforts like the uh, international human rights treaties that protect women's rights around the world. For example, CEDAW. The Convention on Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. The U.S. is one of the, I think it is the only industrialized country that hasn't ratified that treaty, um, 
But we do have our own domestic uh, protections like Title VII and Title IX. I'm going to throw out another change. Um, when I wrote The Culture Make-Believe, uh, I called the FBI because my reading of various hate crime legislation was that if a woman is raped because she is a lesbian or if she's raped because she is African-American, that could be a hate crime. But if she's raped because she's a woman, that was not a hate crime. And um, my understanding is that hate crime interpretations have changed since then. That was just stunning to me when I heard that. Mm -hmm. That was like 2001 that I was writing that book. And even as recently as 2001, the FBI agent I was talking to was saying, no, 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 if, if a woman's raped because she's a woman, that's just because a man wants to have sex. They actually, the, the, the FBI agent actually said that to me. Um, wow. And my understanding is that is that if a woman is raped simply because she's a woman, that that can actually be a hate crime now. I have never come across a case, I haven't seen any case in which ordinary, everyday rape by a man against a woman is considered a hate crime. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I've just never seen it. I've never seen it either, and my inkling would be that those hate hate crime statutes would be state by state, and I'm not at all familiar. I don't know of any states in which, you know, crimes against women, crimes against female human beings is specifically considered a hate crime. Well, then we have not made any progress, have we, on that area? In that area, no. And I, I, I think that from what I have seen, um, the FBI agent you spoke with in 2001 is right. I think, based on both my feminist advocacy and my professional expertise in criminal law, that if there were any state law that made rape by a man against a woman a hate crime, I would have seen it. Right. Right. Well, I, I think that needs to change. Um, I read a very interesting article on... talked about what we consider violence against women be the terrorism that it really is, that women kind of live under a terrorist system um, of threats, constant threats of violence. Um, and it, it really opened my eyes into how normal I even consider it. And I'm someone who works in this area every day. Um. I, I didn't hear anything after somebody who works in this area every day. Did, okay. you, did you keep talking and then the phone crap out? No, no, it's fine. Um, yeah, well, it seems pretty obvious. I mean, if we define an act of terrorism as a an act or threat of violence that is aimed at uh, changing the behavior of a member of a certain oppressed class, which I think is an okay definition of terrorism, um, then certainly with uh, women not being able to go get ice cream at 1230 in the morning, uh we would say that the regime of terror has um, accomplished its goals of of inhibiting women from participating in public life. Right. That's why I thought the analysis was so smart, because it seems obvious when you say it that way. But, you know, as Karen and I had said already, that 
because the system of violence we live under is so normalized, it's it's unthinkable to, to define it that way. Right, and notwithstanding the fact that the Supreme Court in 1971 got around to ruling that women are formally people for purposes of the Equal Protection Clause, I really just don't think that our society fully considers women to be humans. If we did, we would have to define rape and violence against women as acts of terrorism. But we don't. Oh, on on that um, basis, uh, another thing that's uh, tangentially related is the idea of asylum. There are certain categories for which you can gain asylum, you know, you know, seeking protection from your home country, you know, coming into the United States. And it is nearly impossible to get asylum status as a woman, despite the fact that you might come from a country where it's, it is, it is literal terrorism that women live under, just the, the likelihood of, you know, becoming a victim of violence, rape, murder, is just so astonishingly high. But you, you, you cannot you know, gain specific status under our asylum statutes for that. So let's start talking about um, some of the resistance to the uh, the gains made for sex-based protection. And before we go there, I just want to, to, to mention something I think about a lot, which is that when the United States outlawed chattel slavery, it only took like 10, 15 years for the Jim Crow laws to be in place. Mm. And then once I got rid of the Jim Crow laws, um, then we get the prison industrial complex, we get all sorts of other means. So if you if you gain some sort of legal victory, as long as that fundamental hatred remains, there still are ways that the culture finds to 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 to, to try to defeat those gains. I think that's just a generic thing that happens, whether it's whether it's race based, sex based, class based, anything else. So, having said that, right. um, can you go through a few of the types of resistance and blowback? I don't know, blowback's the wrong word. Resistance. I don't like resistance either. Um, reaction of, of attempts to destroy the sex based protections. I mean, certainly well, there are attempts to to do away with, say, a woman's right to choose that are coming from the far right, etc. So, can you go through some of the resistance to to woman to woman personhood? <laughs> well, certainly in terms of abortion, we're seeing state after state pass increasingly draconian laws that prohibit women from being able to exercise our hard fought and hard won reproductive rights. And you're absolutely right, Derek, those attacks are mainly coming from the far right. And I think that, I personally think that Roe v. Wade is absolutely under threat. And I think that women need to be prepared to lose Roe v. Wade and to take the fight for reproductive rights to state legislatures, um, because that's where the fight's going to go if, and I think when, we lose Roe v. Wade. So that's that's certainly a major threat to the rights of women as people. I consider the right to abortion a fundamental human right, uh, and we're going to have to be fighting it out in state legislatures. And then 
another another place to dive into this particular topic is again going back to Title IX, uh, and this is a threat that is not coming from the far right, but the Obama administration issued a guidance document to every entity that gets Title IX funding, which is almost every college or university and um, you know, school districts throughout the country. It's basically every educational institution throughout the country. Uh, this guidance document issued by the Obama administration said that for purposes of interpreting claims of sex discrimination, schools that receive Title IX funding must interpret the word sex to mean gender identity, which would mean that anyone can state a claim for sex discrimination on the basis of the person's gender identity, regardless of the person's biological sex. That guidance has since been rescinded, but this is still a major issue making its way through the courts across the country. I think it's, it's, it's really important. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, please. Um, that Kara points out that these threats are coming both from the far right and from the so-called progressive left, um, because the hatred for women is universal. Um, and I think nothing is, is more clear than what's happening right now. The pushback we're getting against protections for women, female born people is coming from all sides of the political spectrum. Um, a non us example right now is um, the issue in Britain that they are having with um, offices specifically uh, created for women are, are being um, occupied by biological males who um, are, that that is not the intended beneficiary of that type of post. And I, I would not be surprised if we see more and more of that in the States as well, um, given the pushback from the left. And so what you're talking about are Title IX protections, which were designed to protect females, are being interpreted as a now a, a girl or woman or a female is now being defined as a male who identifies as a woman or girl. Is that essentially correct? Yes. And you, you'll see um, many news stories. Gosh, I can't remember um, when I read this that there, there was a, you know, girls track meet, high school track meet, where the the boys on the team who, uh, you know, self-identify as girls, they've not taken any hormones, they've not had any kind of cross-sex treatments of any kind, but they are blowing the actual female participants on those teams out of the water. Um because of the fact that they're being able to compete against the girls. And, you know, we, uh, we probably need to make explicit that for, for several decades, there, there have been people who seem to, and I'm not a psychologist, so I'm, I'm coming at this from a feminist perspective, not from the field of psychology, but it seems to me from the literature that I have read, that there have been people for several decades who sincerely believe that they actually are the opposite sex and who work with their doctors and their psychologists and their psychiatrists to that have in the past gone through a period of 
taking hormones to change their bodies and undergoing surgery to change their bodies. And I can't pretend for a minute to know what it's like to actually think that I'm a man. I don't, I don't have any experience with that personally, but we, we have to just be explicit that it is not possible to change one's sex, even if, even if a person, um, might feel better having gone through all of that hormonal and surgical, um, uh, all of those hormonal and surgical changes, right? So that's how it's been for several decades. And what we've seen in the last couple of years increasingly is that a person can identify as the opposite sex or socially, our society seems to have accepted that this is a social, um, that this is possible socially, that people can simply identify as the opposite sex simply on the basis of their say-so. So I, I, I personally don't feel in favor of people making drastic hormonal and surgical changes to their bodies, but if that is something that they have worked out with their doctor, it's really not my business to weigh in on people's you know, personal surgical or hormonal changes. But this notion that we're seeing increasingly popularized over the last couple of years is that a person can simply say that they are the opposite sex and our society will accept that that is true. And it's on the basis of that self-identification that, for example, what Andrea is talking about, male students can simply compete in female sports competitions simply on the basis that they say, I am female. And that's deeply problematic. Yep. And and those same male students are, of course, then able to access the, the female locker rooms and all the other private spaces that we talked about earlier that women had to actually fight for to have in public. And now they are, again, essentially being colonized by the male population. So there's two directions I want to go here. One of them is that I live in a small rural county in California, which is extremely conservative. It's sort of like Mississippi on the North Coast. And even the local school board has said that uh, when there is an overnight field trip, that uh, the males, high school, um, the males who identify as transgender uh, will be put in, they will sleep with the, 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 the group which with, with which they identify, and to protect their privacy, the parents cannot be told. <laughs> um, so there's to protect their privacy is very interesting. You know, protecting the girls' privacy evidently doesn't appear in the picture. That's one part. But the other thing I want to say is that just generically, not having to do with this issue, self-identification is crap. And <laughs> just generically, if if if. And I don't understand how it can make any legal headway because, because there's no, I mean, for God's sake, you don't identify as to whether you parked in the correct parking lot. I mean, the law is about definitions and laws about verifiable definitions and lies, laws about, that's the whole point of making a law is that so you can know whether something is first or second degree murder or whether something, somebody parked illegally or not. And so to, to, to say, I am not what I am. I mean, it's just, it's just absurd. I can, here's the thing is when I wrote culture make believe it was about hate groups. And the first thing I did is I went to a KKK website 
And the KKK website said, um, we are not a hate group. We're a love group because we love whites. Mm. And, okay, so immediately I, I recognize either A, um, the KKK is not a hate group, or B, you can't trust rhetoric. Anyway, so go take that anywhere you want. It just, this pisses me off because it is so absurd to think that self-identification means anything on any subject whatsoever. I can self-identify as a Hall of Fame baseball player. Either I am or I'm not. Stephen King has a great definition of what a writer is. Writer, if you have written some piece and then you sent it somewhere and then they published it and then they gave you money that you used to pay your power bill. <laughs> That's how you define I Like, are you a lawyer? Do you identify as a lawyer or are you a lawyer? <laughs> from a law school and I passed a bar exam, right? Like those are concrete right. that happened. Um, so just here, here's a quick story on self-identification and then I'll say something about your point, Derek, about the law. So I used to get in Facebook fights with random strangers on the internet about this topic and I still do sometimes, but I, I kind of avoid it because it's not a use, you know, it's not a good use of time, but Back when I was doing this, somebody said, I believe what people tell me about themselves. And so I got in there and I said, if I tell you that I am a tree, will you believe that I am a tree? And I fully thought that that would end the conversation. But no, she came back and she said, if you tell me that you are a tree, I will believe that you are a tree. And I was kind of stunned. And then I came back and I said... Do you actually believe that it is possible for a tree to open up a laptop and type on a keyboard? And she said, well, I agree with you that that kind of strains credulity. But if you tell me you're a tree, I will believe that you're a tree. Like it got to that level of, of absurdity. In terms of what the courts are doing, it is infuriating to me as a lawyer to be engaging with federal judges who are all extremely well-educated, who make these ridiculous arguments about what they view as the validity of gender identity ideology. And it, I, I, I don't have a good answer for you because I'm in the courts regularly. I, I spent all of today dealing with a case where we are fighting this and reading the opinions of federal judges who do backflips to make gender identity make sense to themselves, it's absolutely infuriating. Didn't you really I am with Kara 100%. Am I, am I interrupting you? Or? I just want to say one thing real quick, which is didn't, didn't you say something once about a federal judge had said something like so-called sex or something like that? And can you give yeah. an example of the, the backflips that they do? Yeah, so it's in this case that I was dealing with today. It's in the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, which is located in Philadelphia, where I used to work. I knew these judges, and I listened carefully to the oral arguments. This is a case, very briefly, a group of students have sued their school for failure to provide sex-segregated spaces, and they lost at the district court level. They appealed. And when they appealed, they went before a panel of three judges and the student's lawyer stood up and started to make oral arguments regarding the definitions of sex and opposite sex. And the judge 
shut him down, would not let him define sex, and said that the word sex is confusing. His word, confusing. And, and that is that is not without precedent, because, I mean, we can go back to the history that we talked about of the importance of defining, you know, what a woman is for the law. Um, if we go back to the, the pregnancy discrimination issue in when it went before the Supreme Court of the U.S. in the 1970s, the court did mental gymnastics to convince themselves that pregnancy had nothing to do with sex, essentially. That's why it wasn't gender discrimination. Um, and so, I mean, the fact that 40 years later they are doing these same kind of mental gymnastics to say that sex does not exist is truly troubling. But but, but in the meantime, they know that sex exists because right. they decided in Oberschfell that same-sex attracted people can marry each other, right? A decision with which I think we would probably both agree. We probably all three of us would agree the court right. knows what the word sex means because they know what a same-sex attracted couple is. They're not actually confused. But somehow when this topic comes up, this topic of gender identity comes up, magically they become confused. And I think the magical piece of that is fascinating because it is magical thinking. It is. Because um, we see that this entire history of where women's rights through the law have come from, it's all been based on biology. So now, suddenly, biology is an unspeakable topic. And right. because of that, yeah. that's why, we're, that's why they, we come up against these threats. That's where they're coming from now, is, is by trying to argue that sex, when it's convenient, that sex does not exist, or that is not definable. Right. Lawmakers knew what a woman was when they wouldn't let us vote. Mm-hmm. But now they don't know what a woman is, because a woman is anyone who says they're a woman. Which, if you go back to the history of where Title IX, Title VII, all of these, you know, sex-based protections came from, what, what use are they if we cannot define who a woman is? If we if we cannot create a protectable class, the law is completely useless. Right. And I just one more thing on this on this topic is that. People who believe, like, we don't create laws that protect people solely on the basis of a belief in something, right? Right. That's not a class. It's not a coherent class of people. It gets complicated when we talk about discrimination on the basis of religion, and I don't know if we want to go down that rabbit hole, but, like, there's a (laughs) distinction between discriminating against people on the basis of religion versus this whole notion that we're going to create a class out of people who have a particular belief in the ideology of gender identity. I don't know if we're getting to down the rabbit hole already. Well, the whole thing is down the rabbit hole. Right. The entire conversation, I think, is, it, and it almost has to be, to, to meet them where they are, you know, this this regressive left that is having this discussion, you it's impossible not to go down the rabbit hole because it's, it's the mental backflips that they do to argue, you know, a definition is a definition because I say it is. But that's not a, le- a legal definition. A legal definition cannot be tautological. And, and uh, that's where I think Karen and I probably agree that the frustration is coming in. No definition, not just legal, no definition. The definition right. is square no, that can't be tautological. Right. That's true. But particularly for us, I think, because that's where we are seeing it the most. Okay, so, so 
So let's do two definitions of woman. First is your definition of woman, and next is the uh, gender identity-based definition of woman. Let's just be really explicit. What is your definition of a woman? Adult, human, female. Okay. We and by the way, Derek, that is not my definition. That's Merriam-Webster. <laughs> That's not my belief. That's Merriam-Webster's definition. Well, Merriam-Webster's obviously bigoted. <laughs> um, just kidding. Anyway, so what is the what is the gender identity definition of woman then? Anyone who says they're a woman. But that's that not is logical. Literally. <laughs> so there's there's no defining feature of womanhood that makes it a category. If you're a woman because you say you're a woman. I, I I'm not saying anything because I just have my head in my hand. <laughs> I, well, right. Go ahead. Okay, so can you can you really nail home the? Uh, it seems very clear to me that this movement is part of an anti-woman backlash. And if yes. you're not comfortable saying that, that's fine. If you're comfortable saying that, can you explain it, please? I, I would be comfortable saying this. I want to kind of bring a lot of what we've said full circle to say, I'm not saying this and I'm not, you know, opposing gender identity's definition of woman because I hate people who, who think that way or because I think that, you know, people who identify as transgender are unworthy of protection, um, including legal protection. But my concern is with women and the legal protections we've had to fight for, for literal centuries. That, 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 that this idea that a woman is anyone who says they're a woman is erasing our biology. It is erasing the basis on which we have and need legal protections. We've spent the whole, you know, first 15 minutes of our conversation talking about the increased risk of violence that women are at every single day. The astonishing rate of domestic violence and rape and murder. Three women every day in the United States. We need access to our legal protections based on our biology, based on the fact that we are adult human females, women. Um, that is where our concern is coming from, not from some desire to gatekeep the identity of womanhood. It has nothing to do with that, with pride or anything. It has to do with our biological reality that we live with and we see play down in statistics every day. And I would just add to that, the, the rights of lesbians to love women, right? right. Like a, a lesbian is a woman who is attracted to other women. And people probably, your, your listeners probably are not aware that lesbians are under serious attack. And I mean that literally violently in the streets of pride in London, mm -hmm. San Francisco, in Baltimore. Women are marching for their rights as lesbians and they are literally being attacked verbally and physically by people who do not want women to have the right to form relationships with other women. Like this is this is happening um, all the time now, and and I'm really glad we're having this conversation because it has been my experience that most of the people in my life do not understand what is really going on. People in my life want to be inclusive and kind and accepting and tolerant, and that's all very well-intentioned. 
but they don't understand the extent to which women are seriously under attack by all of gender identity ideology. To be clear about the lesbians, what you're what you're talking about is lesbians are lesbians are women, females who are attracted to females, and um, because of gender identity, these women are being physically threatened and physically assaulted because they don't believe that a male who identifies as a woman is a lesbian and so they don't want to have sex with him because they don't and they are considered bigoted and they are physically assaulted for this. Am I am, am I expressing this correctly? Yes. Yes. If if we are supposed to accept, you know, a male as a woman because uh, he says he is a woman and we're supposed to accept him on our sports teams, we're supposed to accept him in our bathrooms and in our women's prisons and everywhere else, why are, then uh, will lesbians not accept him into their beds? That's, that's essentially there. And they make this argument, I just want to point out also, that the San Francisco Public Library put on a display that, that included um, axes and barbed wire wrapped baseball bats that were there with the uh, explicit instructions that they were to be used against women who disagree that these males are women. I am once again not misexpressing this, correct? Right. And and to my understanding, that has been explained as oh well that's that's not violence. But our saying that a male who says he's a woman is in fact a man, that's literal violence. And yet a display in a public library full of literal weapons, that is not violence. It's it's again the mental gymnastics that kind of undergird this entire movement. So I'm really sorry to do this to you when we're when it's getting really interesting. <laughs> but um, we have like a minute or two left. Sorry. And so can those, those people who agree that biology exists and that, uh, you know, we have hundreds of millions of years of evolution that tell us what a female is, surprisingly enough. I, I'm guessing, by the way, that that judge, by the way, when that judge has sex... I'm guessing he knows what sex-based is. Um, but leaving all that aside, um, what can those of us who care about women's protections and those of us who care about uh, sex-based protection, those of us who care about the rights of lesbians to not have sex with men, those of us who care about the rights of girls to bathe free from the presence of, of men, of boys, um, what can we do? What what what? What are you doing and how can we help you and how can we join this movement in general? I mean, at a minimum, people on, you know, the so-called left need to be talking about this more because I was serious when I said most of the people in my life, my friends and family, they're very traditional liberals. They do not understand what is going on. They do not understand the threat that this ideology poses to women in general and to lesbians in particular. And when I speak with them and have conversations that are very similar to this one and bring out some of the discussions that we've been having, people see, they understand. People, so many people are actually not stupid. And <laughs> people understand that women are female and men are male. It's not complicated. So I really, really want more people on the so-called left to be talking with our friends and family and, and educating ourselves 
and each other on this issue. And if I could just put in a plug, since you asked, Derek, I hope this is okay. Um, Women's Liberation Front is fundraising uh, to cover its legal bills. It, Women's Liberation Front is in the courts every day fighting this fight, but they don't have very much money. I should say we. I'm on the board of Wolf. Um, if anybody is inspired to support this legal fight, please go ahead and donate to Women's Liberation Front. And do you have any concluding statements, Andrea? I just I want to second everything Kara has said, up to including um, donation, because unfortunately at this point it's a kind of an unpopular battle that we're fighting, um, and we we can't do it by ourselves. Um, we do need the support of our family and friends. And um, another thing, I guess, when when we see women getting deplatformed, you know, from university spaces and conferences and other places because they have a, a gender critical lens through which they uh, analyze, we need to be talking about the fact that that's not okay, that in our supposedly, you know, free democracy, it's, it's freedom of speech, it's freedom of ideas, to, and to express those ideas that, um, <laughs> try, I'm trying to think of, of how best to say this, just that, that it, it can't be okay to shut down women just because we disagree. That That has to, we have to make a clear stand and say we're not going to shut women down. We need to let women talk about our experiences. Um, and uh, for fear of angering the, the left, we can't just roll over and let this keep happening. This is just another form of silencing of women that's been going on for, well, since the beginning of patriarchy. Right. Yep. Well, I would like to thank you so much for your work and like to thank you for being on the program. I would like to thank my listeners for listening. My guests today have been Kara Dansky and Andrew Orwall. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio and the Progressive Radio Network.